You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. Welcome to another week. Fantastic information. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And we are so, so, so lucky to have the Minister for Transport and Planning, the Honourable Rita Safiotti, back in the studio to talk more holistically about the idea of urban infill versus urban expansion. That is the whole point of transport and planning, right? That's exactly right. Hello to all the listeners out there. Minister, today we're talking about that balance. I know you've been a real warrior recently for urban infill. What's your view with regards to the balance of infill versus expansion, given, as you said before, you inherit plans, you inherit 25-year plans that have to be seen out, but surely urban infill is the way to go for so many reasons. Yeah, as you know, I'm a big supporter of infill, of creating and adding vibrancy to existing communities and also supporting small businesses in existing communities. I think in Western Australia, as I've always said, I think people want a choice and the choice is between a new house and land package or a unit or townhouse or an apartment in a redevelopment area. So I always think people need a choice. And in relation to that debate between expansion and and infill, as planning minister, you inherit a lot of land that's zoned according to decisions of the past. So you can't unwind that. But what you can do is make sure it's connected well with public transport. So some of those negative consequences of urban sprawl in particular congestion are addressed through better transport connections and also you need to also make sure there's opportunities for those that want to live closer to trains existing train stations or closer to the city center so that's the uh, i suppose the tension uh, and the challenge for myself as a minister but i do think there's always going to be that choice required for new house and land compared to buying in existing suburbs. I appreciate those views, that balance of view. Very diplomatic. The state building bonus came out because of COVID. It probably wouldn't have come out if COVID didn't exist because the building industry was slowly rebuilding itself. And most of those companies at the top would say we were pretty happy without it, to be honest, but we will take it. Thank you very much. That building bonus has done one thing, really. It's brought a lot of building companies back off their knees, which has helped. helped. It's very important. We understand the trade side it's a Labor government looking out for the everyman, the trader is a big part of this ethos. But what it's really done is given a big steroid injection to the meat processing, big project builder, big land developer with their big marketing strategy side of the world. They don't know how to innovate. They haven't been made to innovate ever. And through Keystart, which is a government-backed lender, they have really just added another three, four, five, whatever thousand amount of houses to the already chronically oversupplied nation-leading mortgage stress, negative equity parts of Western Australia being the Baldivis, the Byford, the Ellenbrook and the Alcamos areas where people are already financially knackered. Adding more supply to oversupplied areas, surely that's a very unwanted side effect of these grants. Well, there's no doubt that the stimulus has, in a sense, facilitated more new house and land developments There's, and that's what it in a sense was targeted to do because of the easy constructability of those of those types of homes so there's no doubt about that in relation to uh, negative equity the feedback that I'm getting is that valuations are starting to rebound and maybe that's something that I've heard but I sense that that's happened in relation to 
the very significant issue of negative equity that existed for many people a number of years ago, that there has been some rebound evaluations. But um, this is a program that, as I said, it's all, it was all about making sure that the industry didn't collapse, that builders could continue and that jobs could be maintained. And yes, it was very targeted to new house and land packages. In the future, of course, the challenge will be to not reverse it, but to have other measures and incentives for redevelopments and infill developments. And that's something that we'll be looking at. And as part of that, from a transport and not from a, like a treasury point of view, from a transport point of view, is what we can do to facilitate new housing opportunities near all of our train stations. Because in, the, in that context, we have a huge opportunity to leverage some private sector developments, potentially using land as a incentive or any of those types of arrangements to facilitate further redevelopments near our train stations. I can 100% see how it was a necessary, in my opinion, a necessary evil. It was jobs, jobs, jobs. And it's really, in a lot of ways, saved the economy. I recognise that. Unfortunately, at the expense of the most vulnerable, the ones who have got 10 grand in the bank and use the grants and key start to then be pushed through the marketing side of the big building companies and now living out 40, 50 Ks where not only are they probably starting with negative equity in real terms, even if you look at a valuation, but the people next door who are $100,000 less in value for the same house that's two years old, they've got now got another property to compete with when it comes to sales at some point in time. So I think there's definitely wherever there's an action, there's a reaction and there is a big fallout that's going to be for those people who are already struggling established properties struggling in those areas who can't get out of the key start loans are in 100 grand negative equity more supply does not equal higher prices that's the issue that i've got but i recognize that that wasn't a minister for planning decision and that's something that you probably have to now you said deal with balance it out in terms of balancing out the urban infill because if you imagine the tens of thousands of people living in these locations and then you recognize how empty beaufort street has been oxford street Albany Highway, all these areas, and you think, imagine if they all lived there. Imagine how vibrant and safe these areas would be. What a missed opportunity. To a point, but the feedback that I'm getting is there's there's a bit of activity in the apartment market. We turned the sod to the new Civic Heart Building in South Perth. What a great thing to see. Yeah, and that came a bit out of the blue. We approved the development last year but sometimes these projects don't get off the ground but that was that was a very exciting opportunity and I think our new planning process if you look at some of the hurdles of getting good infill it has been planning risk has been a big one so basically there's no planning risk in building a new house and land in Baldivis but there's a lot of planning risk if you want to do something that's a bit more creative in the inner to medium ring Mm. so removing planning risk as I said leveraging private sector developments near our train stations will be very much a big second term agenda because now a lot of the work's been done to be delivering the infrastructure it's now facilitating the infrastructure for housing exactly right and de-incentivizing urban expansion these some these are the biggest companies in perth right Saddley, bgc dale alcox pete these companies are very very influential companies with what they do they are the reason that these Uh, obviously public planning the reason these suburbs exist the way they do that the reason we're the most spread out city in the world right if they didn't exist we wouldn't have the businesses creating these they're not going to innovate unless this government forces them to innovate right so the cool thing is we've seen Satterley start their first ever apartment building in Willoughby yeah no I think uh, all the big builders now looking more at potential infill product so I know in my discussions with industry leaders that there's starting to be a bit more of a move and that's a good thing the big developers moving to infill product as I said when you look at and this is something that 
people who don't venture out to the suburbs very often miss is that a lot of density is actually provided in the new suburbs too, in, in, a, in a sense. So They're master planned. Yeah, suburbs. master planned. The way that we probably wanted a lot of the suburbs to be 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And so in, in a sense, so these bigger developers coming in and looking at more infill products is going to be a good thing. And I know they're excited. From our perspective, it's making sure we create the opportunities and de-risk some of the planning side, get more community confidence in what can be produced. And so, as I said, as hopefully a second-term agenda would be to really facilitate exciting opportunities. The Armadale Rail Line is uh, is very very exciting. So we've just announced the shortlist for the um, shortlist for the contractors to elevate rail through Vic Park. The opportunities that's going to create, the amount of land that's going to be freed up, the opportunity for regeneration along that line is going to be enormous. Mm. And so these are the opportunities that will come once there's infrastructure certainty, we're delivering the infrastructure certainty, we've got to get the planning right and that will facilitate some great outcomes. Now, I see you as a bit of a warrior minister. I have a lot of respect for what you've done, especially with the city of Nedlands. Now, this is a council who did nothing for 25 years because they weren't really made to. And what it did was it created really a one option suburb of you can have a four by two or a three by two on a quarter acre and that's it. And there was no variety. They weren't contributing to urban infill. And then Minister Safiotti came in with a thumb and said, things are changing here and they need to. And then how the uptake we've seen of townhouses and apartments come through in the last year from developers and then the people buying into that just shows that you're on the right path. But the conversations you've had with Subiaco, for example, it just shows that it's not that easy either. Can you give us some insight from your side of the world as how's it been? What's going on in that space? Yeah, okay. Look, I'd say in the past, when we looked at the infill strategy, you know, housing targets, I don't think the state government was active enough. So what would happen is we would set targets for a suburb or for a council. Some councils did it well. And some councils did it badly. So a council would come back and say, okay, well, we're just going to let these three suburbs allow to subdivide. And that gives us that infill target and very much that's it. They didn't actually do the work. Both councils and the state government were a bit lazy, I think. They didn't do the work to say, okay, well, where do we want the density? Where do we need, where the do density? We need a density? You know, how's our small businesses going? Shouldn't we look at targeting maybe this density around these small business strip? Because that means they've got more people that can go and support those small business. Shouldn't we be targeting it near the you know, bus, major bus station? Activity or- centres. So what happened, and this is something that I think was a very poor outcome, is the density targets, the housing targets that were set a number of years ago, there were a lot of scheme amendments that were approved, which were not very good, you know, which was just wholesale subdivision. Well, look at the city of Stirling, for example, a city that's so diverse, and just to meet their targets, they went, oh, we'll triple the amount of people in Balga, which gentrified the suburb, but then just created three times the amount of the same non-diverse socioeconomic problem and Westminster and Nolamara, but we won't touch Corrine, we won't touch Hammersley, and all these people who live there, which are very suburb-specific, they'll have no options. Yeah, and then also, I know one personal experience from the city of Swan was they basically went through one suburb, and I won't mention it, and they just, okay, everything's up-zoned. That's it. And no one's going to, first of all, probably no, no one's going to develop at the moment because the land value is not big enough to actually warrant it. The second is there's three district shopping centres and they did no density around those district shopping centres. Lazy. Yeah. So those district shopping centres always are str- you know, struggling to get the continue their market. So when we came, you know, I was we were very keen not to replicate that. So what we've done is we've been a far more, in I suppose, interventionist or very much involved in looking at what do these schemes produce. Netherlands was an example where 
the council did not respect at all myself as minister or the state government that we had any role in planning and i think as elected members of any council you have to respect the fact that the state government's actually got the planning powers and many of those have been delegated to councils over time. And so there was a lack of any respect, there was a dismissiveness, and there was just a complete arrogance about... Well, it's not surprising given the location we're yeah. talking about here. Well, this wasn't, I think, the community. This was some elected members, you know. Yeah. I won't say that about the community. It was actually some of the elected members where there was an arrogance to the rest of the community. It is a NIMBY part of the world, though. Uh, and so, I actually, so you could say the same thing so is Dun Craig, for example, with all the issues about what's going on there. It's also how things are sold to people, though. So if, you know, if you're sitting in your house and someone's knocking on your door saying that your house is devalued, you're never going to be able to sell, and there's going to be all these nasty people living across the road, it does create fear. So there are people in the community who want to spread that fear. Propaganda. Exactly. Yeah. Next, And then someone else could be coming saying, oh, this is going to help support small business, create vibrancy, create safety. There's the, that's the alternate view. But there are those that want to spread fear. And I was saying, this is about the council at the time, um, took a very arrogant approach. And they believed that they could never have any change, that they would not and not ever develop any change. So as a result, we had to, in a sense, um, make some you know hard decisions to make those changes. Well, I congratulate you. Yeah. And I think it's super exciting what's going on there now. Yeah. But what's next? Well, can I just talk about Subiaco? Because Subiaco, the draft scheme, I think that I probably came out just after I, that had been worked on, was again, I think a lazy approach, which had wholesale subdivision of many streets, which really didn't suit it. So again, so we worked with the council to actually look at where the density sort of no should be. And so that's what we've been trying to do. We rejected one scheme that had the lazy approach of complete wholesale subdivision, even though many people in the community wanted it because it increased their ability to redevelop. We did that because it wasn't connected to public transport. It was a lazy approach and didn't create the activity centres that we wanted. So that's been our approach. There have been councils that have been very much on that path and been very good. There are those that still think sort of the lazy approach is going to get through which it won't and there are those like Netherlands who said this is nice for everybody else but it won't shouldn't include us and uh, that's not I don't think it's not an approach we can accept Cambridge on the list well Cambridge has been an interesting one I haven't uh, I haven't delved too much in Cambridge to tell you the truth but that it's the same as Subiaco it's quite militant in the way that the people that have been elected and then unelected very much just based on views of urban infill or not like I said it's all about us as a state trying to create places for people to live, create uh, places for our parents to live, for our kids to live, and, you know, we all have to work together. Well, I'm sure that you'll uh, get some outcomes the same way you did in Netherlands. From our chats in the past, you know I'm pretty vocal against urban expansion. Again, just to capstone our first part of the conversation today, does urban expansion have a place in Perth's future, and if so, where? Well, I've got to say the the front is already out there in a sense, and... So, for example, there's urban la- urban zone land in Yanship and there's, you know, down in Mandra. So the place like Baldivis, Alcamos, you know, Allenbrook are pretty much in, in a sense. <laughs> we're not expanding the, uh, the the suburbs. We're just, in a sense, filling in some of the suburbs. So... Is that, that it? Is, is is that sort of are we drawing a well, line? Well, as I in say, if you draw a line, if you draw a line, you automatically have market impact. So that's why I've been, been very careful not to draw that line. My view is that we're going to have to continue to create better places for development within the central and middle ring. Okay, so last question. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but public open space. Now, that was set up a long time ago, the contributions 
control policy from the state government to really get the big developers when they're doing these new land estates to make sure there's parks and rec and 10% of all land should be parks and rec. And if they're not going to provide that, they should provide that in cash in lieu. The policy allows for anything above a house behind a house to do that. And what's happened is City of Stirling, City of Bassendean, a lot of a few councils, I wouldn't say a lot, but a few councils have Frankenstein that policy, brought it in for themselves, and even to a point where the City of Stirling at a triple X level now charges your mum and dad developer 10% of the land value, which might be fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars cash, because they're not getting the land, the seventy square meters of land in lieu, they want the cash, to be able to approve a subdivision. Now, the problem for that is, one, it massively just devalues the whole project for that mum and dad developer. It makes it too risky, there's not enough money in it, and they don't do it. So what do they do? Instead of doing a triplex to meet the zoning potential, they'll just do a side-by-side. So it sort of flies in the face of the whole state policy, the zoning and everything that's there. Is that something the state government's aware of? And if there are, that really doesn't sort of match up with the urban infill policy in the first place, Directions 2031. And if they're not... What do you think about that? First of all, the concept of developer contributions have have existed for a long time in in, in different you know in different forms. So you're right in relation to new developments, greenfields. There's a a policy which we've reviewed in relation to what people should contribute to. In relation to existing suburbs, again, this is something where I do think we need to have more consistency. It is a bit of a tough question in relation to if there's an intensity of development, if there's more people. There's more call on the community assets and there may be, need to be an increase in community assets. question for us is how do you implement that fairly and once you do set a level, whether, it's a, you know, whether it be a triplex or whatever development, do you skew what the market does? So it's something we can look, oh, very can look at in the second term should be, we be re-elected because I do think it will be good to have a fairer system that's more consistent but understands that when you bring more people in, there's different calls on different assets. One of the issues for us is schools, for example, which is, I think, one of the biggest, uh, I think, tensions when it comes to when you're wanting a lot of infill in a suburb. The school sites, you know, they, they were built many, many instances decades, decades ago. ago. They don't have a lot of land around. The cost of doing double-storey buildings is higher than normals. And the how do we trigger redevelopments of those schools? Because I don't think you can really provide new schools in many instances because you just don't well, have the land. A lot of them have been closed, right? Pabri High, a couple of the ones that see a journal up, they've, they've been closed. Yeah, they've been closed in the past. And then what happens is the second wave of the young generation come through. And it's quite interesting when you're looking at new um, housing developments and you can see Balladura is an example. When it was built... You know, there was a lot of young kids, then they moved to the high school. Now it's coming into a second wave, and that's the next generation of coming in with young kids. So it's something that we'll definitely have a look at. Again, I'd like to have consistency, more transparency, and a fairer system, and understanding what are the big calls on the community too. Because you're right, you can't build new parks, but in many instances you can improve parks. And again, the question between who should fund these the existing and new rate base that development brings or the developers themselves, the landowners themselves. That's always the constant battle. I think the old issue of developer contributions, the new policy that was introduced a number of years ago, it does give councils a huge revenue source that people are just totally unaware of. So when people talk about taxes on land and so forth, developer contributions, like I said, when it was introduced, it was one of those things that I don't think there was a lot of reaction to because... It really related to, in the sense, the, the new developments. Yeah. yeah, 
um, who now were it's been who used were for sort of guys. yeah. But there is, like I said, there is the discussion to be had about new community assets in infill suburbs. What should potentially any contribution scheme cover? How should it be delivered? And again, creating a system again where we don't want to deter one particular type of development because there's such a financial gap or jump between one type of development to the next. Well, that, and that's the point. Urban expansion already has so many fluid financing uh, pathways, especially to get pre-sold massive new suburbs through all the key start all that stuff all the first homeowners grants it's so much easier to get that up urban infill as you know is already so much harder that contribution generally ends up being 25 30 40 percent of the profit that developer would have made if they didn't have to pay it right so my suggestion if i can provide one would be uh, the councils already get that many more rates you know three times more rates if they're doing a triplex there's some money there and the city of coburn do it well uh, where instead of having a public open space contribution, which might be tens of thousand dollars, they just say for every new piece of land you want to provide or any, every new dwelling you want to create, we charge you about four grand per house and you build it in. And it's a much more fair amount, I think, that people can handle. You can see in that situation in Coburn, the urban infill strategy is working. People are doing it. City of Stirling, no one's done a triplex in three years. Yeah, no, that consistency is a good good idea. The other thing is what is a community asset that you're going to be providing? Um, because in many instances, we know we develop contributions, you don't see the funds for many, many years. And you know, we're, we're finalising the City of Perth Scheme 61. And that is something where, you know, there's an interesting discussion being had about density bonuses and what public good or what public benefit you should provide you know, as part of the density bonuses. And that's something we're looking at, creating a fairer, very clean scheme that's very clear for everybody, going to be consistency applied and would relate to density bonuses. That's something that Melville incorporated, I think, in some of its initial plans around Canning Bridge. But the concept didn't match the reality and that's something we're trying to address. Minister, thank you very much for your time. I know you were, we're late. Uh, we've gone over time, but thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck with the election. I really do personally hope that we'll be seeing you on the news and just out and about doing your thing again for the next few years. I hope so too. Um, elections are always tough times, but hopefully, um, I really hope that we get re-elected because we have so much more work to do. That you do. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!